0: The government isn't mandating vaccines, but will we get there another way? That's one of the topics we're talking about today on This Week in the CLE News Podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Tassi and Jane Cahoon. And Jane Cahoon, it is two weeks from today. You're closing out your career. (laughs) I have no idea who we're going to replace you
1: with. I'm laughing now, but I will be crying soon I to leave you guys, but. It's... I gotta
0: find somebody to replace you on this podcast, <laughs> man, and I don't have anybody. You know, we need somebody that like knows the news. Well, let's you know, see.
1: maybe maybe I'd entertain a freelance uh, contract at the <laughs> right price.
0: <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm even looking outside. We need somebody like a Rick Jackson, somebody that knows all the news that can talk about it. We just, I, I mean, when I brought Laylon, it kind of, I kind of ran out of people. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. Let's begin. With government inaction on the front we're talking about, will it be the private interests that get people vaccinated? What rules are Live Nation and AEG presents, starting for anyone wanting to attend a concert in most of the big Northeast Ohio venues? Leila Tassi, it does seem like more and more the private companies are requiring masks, the, the employers are requiring vaccines for their for their employees. Now, if you want to go to a show... You're going to have to take some steps.
2: Yeah, it's going to make people mad. But (laughs) what doesn't make people mad, right? Uh, So beginning October 4th, you have to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to attend concerts at Live Nation venues and festivals. AEG Presents is the country's second largest event promoter behind Live Nation. And they announced a similar policy last week. They chose October as their start date in the hopes that that would give people ample time to comply and get the shot already. Get the shot! <laughs> but it affects—you know this affects a lot of concerts because Live Nation handles shows at Blossom, Jacobs Pavilion, at Nautica, and House of Blues where 30 concerts are scheduled from October through the end of the year, as well as you select concerts at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. And AEG operates the historic Agora, which has 40 concerts on the calendar between October and December. Some artists performing at the at these places, including Dead and & Company and Maroon 5, have already announced similar precautions. So it is creeping into the private sector more and more that if you want to enjoy your life, you're going to have to be vaccinated. <laughs> so uh, the locally owned music venues such as the Beachland Ballroom, Grog Shop, and Happy Dog have, have haven't yet brought on similar policies, but Troy Smith reported that the venue owners met last week to discuss that possibility. So very curious to see how that will play out.
0: Yeah. It's, I guess, because we're seeing such a rapid spread of the coronavirus, people are succumbing left and right hospitals in certain parts of the country are overrun more so than at the previous highs that the artists just don't want to deal with it. It's like, yeah, we'll play concerts, but you're not coming unless we're, we're safe. And that's, That's interesting. I mean, that's that I guess that's the appropriate way because the government is is handcuffed by all of the the right left nonsense and all of the pontificating that private interests will be the ones that do it. What's interesting, too, is that there are states that are trying to prohibit this kind of thing.
2: Um,
0: But as that goes into the courts, it's kind of hard to enforce. I mean, I do have a right. How
2: can you how can you enforce that? How can you force? I mean, if they want to, they can put any restrictions they want on their on their events, They're private companies. And and why, why would, why would you force them to be responsible for a super spreader event? (laughs) I mean, mean, no one wants that.
0: uh, They can't do anything they want. I mean, you've got, you can't violate people's civil rights. It's just, you know, if you're inviting somebody into your home, you have every right to say you're coming into my home. You're going to be vaccinated. I'm not going to have you infect my kids. Right. Uh, Well,
2: wearing a mask is not a violation of a civil right. You have, you have to wear a shirt. You have to wear shoes. You can wear a mask. (laughs) I mean,
0: (laughs) (laughs) whatever. Not that, not that you have strong feelings about this. As your kids return to school, right? You're listening this week in the CLE. What unusual step did the federal prosecutor in the notorious House Bill Six case take Monday with regard to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost? Jane Cahoon, prosecutors don't generally do what they did yesterday.
1: Yeah, and we've seen a couple of unusual developments in this case recently, but the one you're talking about is that acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Ohio, uh, Vipal Patel, he wrote a letter to Yost basically confirming that the FBI had interviewed Yost during this investigation, but only as a cooperating uh, witness. We're talking about the House Bill 6 scandal here. This And the, I guess this letter was to basically clear up speculation about what the FBI talked to Yost about. And that speculation resulted from some information coming out in public that the U.S. Attorney would rather have kept confidential. But hopefully I'm not being too cryptic or confusing anyone. But it basically involves these private negotiations that federal prosecutors had with one of the House Bill 6 defendants, Matt Borges. and. This information Borges made public in in what has been a vigorous attempt by him to defend himself and and prove his innocence. And as I said, the, the federal prosecutors really wanted this confidential, but he's come out. And he told us for a story last week that the federal prosecutors during one of these private meetings had accused him of bribing Yost that in turn prompted the lead prosecutor in the case to to push back at borges writing him a letter saying that was not the case that borges and his lawyer had misunderstood them and in fact according to that letter the fbi interviewed yost in july 2020 about his conversations from that, that dated back to August 2019 with someone else, and that someone else was former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder, who, as we know, is a primary target of this corruption probe and is under indictment. And, um, you know, that letter, which Borges also shared with us, was part of our story. So when when the FBI um, interviewed him about this, I guess um The the conversation, I'm sorry, from 2019 that Householder had with Yost was he was apparently approaching Yost about whether a customer charge that House Bill 6 created to bail out the nuclear plants could be classified as a tax because that was Householder's strategy. He wanted to use that as a legal argument to block this law from being repealed and to protect it. And evidently, he was trying to get some legal ammunition from Yost. But anyway, in the letter that the U.S. attorney sent to Yost, he thanked him for talking to the feds. He said he set a good example for public officials. And he kind of suggested that even though, you know, Householder had corrupt motives when he talked to Yost, that Yost was like unaware of Householder's scheme and didn't have anything to do with it. So, I mean, I'm sure Yost was not happy that his name got put out there. And so I don't know if he asked for this letter, but I'm sure he appreciates that being clarified by the U.S., there are a attorney. lot of
0: people out in the world that would love to have a letter from the prosecutors basically saying you're not a target which this actually does
1: I, you know we talked
0: about the the borges thing i think it was last week and he, he, we didn't dig into that misunderstanding as much as we might have i mean it, it's kind of hard to misunderstand that i mean, I mean if borges yeah. <laughs> and his attorney heard them say we have evidence that you bribed the attorney general I mean, how do you <laughs> misunderstand that? And, you know, Borges' whole point was they lied, they, which they're not supposed to do in, in trying to coerce him to make a plea that they 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 said to him they have evidence that he bribed the attorney general, which he says there is no evidence. He didn't do that. And the, and for them to come right out and say he misunderstood I'd love to understand the wording that's involved here that could lead to that misunderstanding because <laughs> if I'm sitting at the table with the prosecutors and they say that I say you go wait, wait a minute wait a minute. you have evidence that I bribed Dave Yost really I, I'd, I'd love to see that evidence you know I just don't know how there's a misunderstanding and I wonder if what Borges is telling us is true that they actually did lie to him and say they had evidence like that and that's why they've come unglued trying to clear Dave Yost, because if they did something in the plea negotiations that's sleazy, that tarnishes the attorney general's name, they would certainly want to clean that up. So it's well, going to be, be nice inter- to
1: have a recording of that uh, conversation, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, because I just don't understand how you can misunderstand it. The uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens with Borges. You know, we keep seeing as documents are filed more and more stuff about other defendants in the case, but there's really been nothing Released about him, and he—he's just at. Adam- I mean, he look. We talked about it. He's poking the bear. I mean, he is openly critical of the prosecutors that have his fate in their hands, which is a risky thing to do unless you're truly innocent, and then you just don't care. So we'll have to see uh, interesting development. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is South Euclid Municipal Court Judge Gail Williams Byers seeking to put the South Euclid police chief in jail for contempt of court? Leila Tassi, Judge Williams Byers, has fought multiple times with the officials running South Euclid. They do not get along But trying to put the police chief in jail, that's a new one.
2: (laughs) I know. This story by Corey Schaefer is bonkers. (laughs) I mean, so this all started during the pandemic when Judge Gail Williams Byers closed her courtroom and began holding court remotely. And she never resumed in-person hearings because she said she has a compromised immune system and the city never helped her make her courtroom COVID safe with plexiglass and stuff like that. She also closed the court's service window on the second floor of the municipal building. So people couldn't go there as they once had with questions about their case. And many of them were angry because they said the judge's staff never answered their phones or returned any of the messages. So who ended up hearing all those complaints in person? The police department, which is located on the first floor of the municipal building. And the chief at that time got sick of it. So he printed out these these small, you know, business cards That basically said, look, the city has no jurisdiction over the municipal court. If you've got an issue to complain about, direct it to the Ohio Supreme Court. Here's their number. It's all basic public information. Well, people started to do that. The Ohio Supreme Court eventually contacted the judge and said that nine or ten people had reached out to them with complaints about the court staff ignoring their calls and giving them no answers about their cases. And this enraged the judge She said the police were encouraging people to report her to the Supreme Court. By then, a new police chief had taken over, Joe Mays, and the judge ordered him in April to stop handing out the cards. So at first, the chief refused, but by the end of May, he did indeed put an end to that practice, and the judge wanted him to then fill out some kind of weekly form attesting to the fact that the department had handed out no cards that week, so every Friday he was supposed to do this and he didn't do it. <laughs> so Williams Buyers found him to be in contempt of court. And get this, she ordered him to spend 10 days in jail to be served on the weekends and to pay a thousand dollar fine if he doesn't start sending the judge those weekly reports. She ordered him to pay his fine in donations to like the Ohio Innocence Project, the Southern Poverty Law Center, or the Equal Justice Initiative, along with a letter explaining why he was being forced to make the payment. So the chief's attorney, Kevin Spellacy, is appealing the sentence on the grounds that this is just all an illegal breach of the separation of powers because the chief reports to the South Euclid mayor, Georgine Wheelow. She is the city safety director. And so the attorney, Kevin Spellacy, he filed an emergency motion on on Thursday asking the Ohio 8th District Court of Appeals to prevent Mays uh, from serving any time in jail until the court hears the appeal. The court granted that motion but hasn't had a hearing yet and so we're kind of waiting to see. I mean this is wild, right? Well, just... <laughs> the,
0: the problem is there's no case before her. So I don't understand with w- without having the police chief involved in a case before her, she just can't unilaterally issue orders to people. Right. You know, she only gets jurisdiction over you If you are appearing before her in a matter and the the police chief is not. So for her to issue an order saying, hey, hey, I want a weekly report. And it's like he doesn't he doesn't answer to her. And then to try to jail him, you would hope that the Supreme Court would would step in. This is the third go around. With buyers, Williams buyers and the city officials, you know, the first time uh, she was trying to get a much bigger budget and and uh, demanding more money and fighting with them. And then it was another time they were they were battling over something., it, you know, this this is out of hand. You're not supposed to do this. and there there probably was a better way to handle it. but i I don't think a judge can just issue orders. I mean, I'd be like issuing an order to you. you know, Taylor <laughs> yeah, Tassi. Right. You know, you, you will not you will not talk about me on the podcast. And the minute right. you talk about her on the podcast, she cites you for contempt. She doesn't have that power. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. And and she did this to a police chief that stopped the practice of the, of the notes it's on his first day or second day on the job. So she really doesn't have a grievance against him. It's just this thing where she wants him to report to her, which is not the way it works. Good story by Corey. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What proposed energy law has brought conservationists and Republican and Democratic lawmakers into a very rare common cause? Jane Kuhn, you don't see this much, although this is really, <laughs> this is really just kind of a law that will give utilities permission that they probably already have, but maybe not.
1: Yeah, you would think. I mean, you're right. How often do you see lawmakers like Democrat David Leland, a a harsh House Bill 6 critic, and Bill Seitz, one of the chief defenders of that law, to get together on an energy bill of all things? But under this bill, it's called House Bill 389. Ohio utilities would explicitly be allowed to voluntarily create their own energy efficiency programs. And as you said, you know, you kind of scratch your head, don't they have that right already? But there's been confusion about this because House Bill 6, the, the part that still stands, gutted Ohio's requirements for utilities to cut electricity demand by 22% by 2025 through these energy efficiency programs. And those involved initiatives like rebates on smart thermostats and energy-saving appliances and financial incentives to build energy-efficient homes. So there's been lingering uncertainty about whether House Bill 6 also prevents utilities from setting up any uh, energy efficiency programs, even if they're voluntary. So um, I guess after House Bill 6 became law, American Electric Power, which is based in Columbus, tried to set up their own energy-saving program, and the staff of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio raised some concerns, you know, noting, uh, you know, this House Bill 6 provision, and and I guess, you know, the Republicans in the majority who passed this didn't like the fees that were charged to ratepayers for these programs, even though the program's in the end, you know, would save people money. But so this bill basically just attempts to make clear that the utilities can set up their own voluntary programs. And it lays out a process for the PUCO to to vet and approve the, the programs, which customers could opt out of if, if they want. So, um, yeah, so some strange bedfellows here. It's got the support of the Ohio Environmental Council, the Environmental Law and Policy Center, um, AEP, Duke Energy, and... Um, AES Ohio, which was formerly Dayton Power and Light. Now, First Energy hasn't come out in support of it yet, but they they said they're reviewing it.
0: The easiest thing to do would just be to repeal the entirety of House Bill 6. House Bill 6 was forged in corruption. It's a disaster in every way. And the fact that it's causing this confusion. Can you imagine a, a bill that prevents utilities from trying to get their customers to save energy. I mean, what, what, what are these? These legislators are just disgusting. They're so bad, it's just dirty, dirty, dirty. Who in their right mind would say, you can't do that? You can't You can't encourage <laughs> your customers to save the planet. It, it just shows you, and, and Bill Seitz still stands behind that lie. It's mind boggling how much criminality went into this thing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is it possible that Cleveland will become home to refugees from Afghanistan, fleeing the Taliban's takeover of their native land? Laila Tassi, we have been the site of refugee uh, movement in the past, crises around the world. Do we think we'll see it here?
2: It certainly is possible that Cleveland will play that role again. So, So we know that in the aftermath of President Joe Biden's decision to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan by the end of the month, the Taliban has retaken control of the country. It's just caused widespread panic among Afghans who are scrambling to flee. And in Cleveland, there are two organizations that are poised to help. Global Cleveland's president, Joe Simperman, said that the organization is ready to help Afghans resettle here as they potentially come to Ohio. And he pointed to other times in history when Cleveland opened its arms to refugees. For example, members of the Jewish community who fled Russia and Central and Eastern Europe during the 70s and 80s and the Vietnamese community that resettled in Cleveland after the fall of Saigon and the Vietnam War The Refugee Response is another organization that's focusing its efforts on helping Cleveland area naturalized citizens and permanent residents leave Afghanistan. The executive director, Patrick Kearns, told our reporter, uh, Cameron Fields, that um, citizens and permanent residents who went to Afghanistan were potentially on leave or or visiting family after getting citizenship, but they're now stuck there. And Cameron also spoke to one Cleveland business owner who is originally from Afghanistan, and he told Cameron that... His sister is trapped there, where the Taliban killed her husband, and she's been trying to survive the turmoil with her seven children. Their brother has gone to help protect the family, but this Cleveland man is just worried sick. Um, I, I suspect we're going to hear a lot of lot more stories like that, uh, especially if if uh, you know these two organizations do indeed bring uh, bring the refugee population to Cleveland and help them help them uh, start anew.
0: Yeah, we didn't use the name of that person because of the fears that it would be used against his family members. And we actually heard from another subject of a previous story, another Afghan national, that the request came in to remove his and his family's identities from another story for the same reason. And we did do that because their fears are legitimate Um, It's frightening stuff. I I hope we talk to more. And again, we'll protect identities because who knows what the Taliban would do to their family members if they saw criticism in the United States. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do members of Ohio's congressional delegation have to say about the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan and the ensuing rapid takeover of the nation by the Taliban? Jen Cahoon, entirely predictable.
1: Yeah, it's not going to surprise you to learn that Republicans in the Ohio delegation were quite harsh in their criticism of President Biden for the tragic way this has played out. Uh, For instance, Senator Rob Portman said any withdrawal should have been based on conditions on the ground, not some artificial timeline. He said it's obvious there was no Systematic plan for withdrawal, and and it's it's wrong for the Biden administration to suggest that this chaos we're seeing now was it was somehow inevitable. Uh, Representative Anthony Gonzalez called the withdrawal an epic failure of leadership. He said that you know the many Ohioans who died and thousands more who served there deserve far better than this, and um, he said it was thoughtless and an embarrassment to our country and um, and then represent you know, let, let me stop you. Because
0: because think about that. Donald Trump, their guy, was the one that negotiated with the Taliban, which a lot of people wondered, is that appropriate to to de- to set up the American withdrawal this year. I mean, that Donald Trump did that. The Republican National Committee had a big story about it because they were proud that Donald Trump had arranged the withdrawal of troops. So where where right. the criticism we're hearing now where were they when Donald Trump did that because <laughs> some people said what yeah. Trump did was legitimize the Taliban i mean this right. was inevitable it was always inevitable that this would come crashing down this is a a civil war and and you know you, you the question goes all the way back to when we originally went in there and then obama didn't pull people out and trump didn't pull people out um, it's just it's interesting that the republicans are using this when they were pretty much proud when Trump made arrangements to pull people out a year ago.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not that simple, as you said there. I mean, and I think you can parse like, okay, the fact that that we were withdrawing, you know, versus the the way it was done, which a lot of people have issues with. But, you know, it also won't surprise you that Jim Jordan you know, said none of this would have happened if President Trump was still in office. And of course, he didn't mention that Trump had negotiated this peace agreement with the Taliban. And, you know, which Biden says left the Taliban in a lot more um, in a stronger military position. But anyway, it it is, um, it's a shame there's there's partisan partisanship here. But, um, you know, I think there's there's a lot to criticize about the whole thing. But um, as you might also expect Democrats, focused more on the effort to, you know, urge the safe evacuation of Americans and Afghans who helped the U.S. rather than going after Biden. That was kind of their theme.
0: Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE what details do we have on the freak roller coaster malfunction that injured a woman standing in line at Cedar Point? Leila Tassi, you were just at Cedar I Point. I know. This probably is a bit frightening. Ugh,
2: this is harrowing to read about. Uh, so, a witness to the event told Cleveland.com that the part of the Top Thrill Dragster that broke off looked like a small metal flying disc before it struck a woman in the head as she awaited her turn to ride the coaster. And the object knocked her to the ground. And I, I'm sure. So it sounds like the just what this person witnessed was so awful that it they just can't get over it. I mean, it's it's traumatizing. The witness was about 15 to 20 feet away when he saw the object hit the crowd and bounce off the ground after it's after it struck the woman. He said it wasn't small. It was bigger than the palm of his hand. Cedar Point confirmed that the object came off the coaster's car as it was slowing down at the end of the ride. Immediately after the woman fell, members of the crowd started calling out for doctors, nurses, other medical people, the witness told uh, told us. Several guests took off their shirts to help stem the bleeding until Sandusky EMS arrived a few minutes later, he said. Cedar Point didn't immediately respond to questions related to the incident or provide an update on the woman's condition, A spokesman for for Firelands Regional Medical Center in Sandusky said the woman was brought to the hospital by EMS Sunday, but was later transferred to another facility, but he didn't say where. An Ohio Department of Agriculture inspector was on site at Cedar Point on Sunday, and two more inspectors were there Monday, and they were doing kind of, you know, performing the inspection of the ride and investigation of the accident, but... The coaster had last passed inspection on May 14th. It was due for its second inspection of the year in September, and these were those twice annual inspections that were required by state law after that fatality at the Ohio State Fair a number of years ago. So, you know, there's only been, I think, one other death at Cedar Point from non-natural causes, and that was in 2015 when someone jumped a fence to retrieve a cell phone and was hit by an oncoming coaster. Uh, Oh, my goodness. I mean... This yeah, is this, really sounds
0: like it sounds like she's seriously hurt. Oh, I mean, the, yeah, the, the secrecy certainly. about just how bad, the fact that she was transferred, the the fact that people had multiple shirts to stop the bleeding. I mean, it sounds like this is a very serious injury, and it's kind of odd that we're getting none of the details that say. I mean, you know, is she going to live? Uh, having a big metal disc come flying at you and hitting you in the head in the is head. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, I hope she's okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, which... Cleveland candidates for mayor stand out with fully formed plans for battling the city's violent crime epidemic. Jane Cahoon, some of them have talking points. Some of them actually have plans. We're not going to go through all of them, obviously. But which which are the few that really stand out, according to Seth Richardson's story?
1: Oh, I I don't know if I want to make this judgment call. I mean, they they some of them really do have specific ideas, even if it's something, you know, a borrowed idea from some. Where else? Like, for instance, uh, State Senator Sandra Williams wants to launch something similar to this PIVOT program in, in Cincinnati that stands for Place-Based Investigations of Violent Offender Territories. That's where you go in and you don't just, uh, she said, arrest the perp and send them to jail. It's like a total systemic takedown of a gang or an organized crime industry. And she also has a, another plan she wants to copy to provide high school students with on the job training in different sectors, you know, including law enforcement. Um, council president, Kevin Kelly has a pretty, um, I think, specific plan on his website, he wants to establish these neighborhood safety centers in each ward. And he wants more bike patrols and foot patrols and to demilitarize the police. And he wants to fully staff um, special units like homicide, sex crimes, you know. And um, you have to say Dennis Kucinich is specific with his wanting to hire 400 officers, even though his opponents say he's overpromising and, and can't do that. He also, you know, wants to de- to create his civic peace department, which you know reminds you of his presidential campaign when he wanted a U.S. Department of Peace. Um, Justin Bibb, the nonprofit executive, he he says right now we've got fifty-one percent of police walking a beat and forty-nine percent in desk jobs, and he wants to make it seventy percent on the street and thirty percent in in uh, desk jobs. He also wants to add a fourth option to like nine-one-one, where you know that's would solely focus on. Uh, mental health. Um, and then we've got, uh, you know, I, w- I would guess, you know, that maybe you think, Chris, that Councilman Bashir Jones and former Councilman Zach Reed seem to be, you know, sort of focused on changing the culture of the neighborhood, you know, without maybe being that specific, but, you know, treating it as a health crisis, you know, with, um getting more you know social workers and and therapists and mental health experts and and really trying to change the neighborhood culture on on the ground
0: there there does seem to be a, a rift in the candidates there there are candidates that clearly say more police aren't the answer that 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 actually won't play well in the neighborhoods where they're, they don't have the greatest relationship with the police and that a different approach is needed as opposed to what what uh, dennis kucinich is saying anyway it's a good story by seth richardson check it out on cleveland.com you're listening to this week in the cle and that's it for another podcast tomorrow we'll have seth richardson on to talk about the mayor's race and the latest debate join us then thanks for listening thanks layla thanks jane